and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Dr. Kevin Gendro earned his bachelor's degree at Boston University before completing his medical degree at Temple University School of Medicine in Philadelphia. He completed residencies in family medicine at Cambridge Health Alliance and Kearney Hospital through Tufts University. He has also received an honorarium for prostate cancer research from the Dana-Faber Cancer Institute. Dr. Gendro is a member of the American Academy of Family Physicians and the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. His clinical interests include quality of life improvement, weight loss, dermatology, behavioral pediatrics, and adolescent medicine. His new book is called Fasting While Furious, How I Turned Anger and Sadness into Motivation for Weight Loss. In his spare time, he does volunteer work for uninsured patients, authors and edits children's books, enjoys creative writing, and is engaged in early childhood literacy initiatives. Dr. Kevin Gendro, welcome to Boundless Body Radio. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. It's such an honor to have you. Um, your book says that you're full of anger and you're furious, but you sure don't seem like you're very furious. <laughs> I look at your social media and you've got puppies, you've got great weight loss results, you've got bow ties, there's all kinds of stuff, but I don't see a lot of anger. It's actually funny. You know, it's such a, it's like a catchy name for a book, like Fasting While Furious, but I am not really a very furious or negative person. It's just kind of to exemplify really how I got inspired to lose all of my extra weight, you know, along my journey and how a lot of it was kind of emotionally mediated, the weight gain and then the weight loss. And so, you know, it's just catchy, but a lot of my weight loss has to do with things beyond just fasting and things beyond just fury. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, I did mention the puppy. You have an absolute adorable puppy. Um, can you tell us about your dog? Yes, of course. So <laughs> my dog is a Cocker Spaniel Poodle mix. Um, his name is Teddy Theodore. Um, my sister, actually, she passed away of cancer, which is part of my weight loss story we'll, we'll get into, I'm sure. Um, and before she passed, when she was in hospice, she's uh, just 32 years old, she told me the exact breed of dog to get, color of dog, and exactly what to name him. So I kind of just listened to her and he's been pretty amazing, to be honest. So he's been, uh, you know, a reason for me to get out of bed every day after losing my sister and best friend. Wow. Yeah. What an incredible gift. They're such special animals. I think if it were um, my wife, Bethany's way, this, this podcast would be called tell us about your puppy. And we would just talk about your puppy for an hour. But um, fortunately, <laughs> fortunately for our listeners and unfortunately, I guess for Bethany, you have an amazing story that you've already mentioned that we would love to hear. So why don't we dive into your story with weight loss? Yeah, sure. Um, whenever I share this story, I like to just start with kind of how I gained all my excess weight to begin with, because I was in fact a 306 pound physician. I was a practicing doctor, an MD um, who weighed over 300 pounds and I was seeing patients and giving advice at that size. And so how I gained that weight over the years was pretty multifactorial, but a lot of it started when I was a teenager and my father was unfortunately diagnosed with um, metastatic melanoma. So he had skin cancer and it was stage four. And over an 18 month period, he underwent chemotherapy, radiation, multiple surgeries. And the doctors were uh, actually up at Beth Israel in Boston were kind of chasing this this cancer throughout his body. And unfortunately, every time we would get news about you know an update on his status, it was always negative. And I slowly but surely uh, between, you know, starting undergrad at Boston University and being a pre-medical student um, and getting all of this, uh, you know, 
negative news about my father, I just kind of started to eat my feelings and I turned to food in order to cope with life's stressors, which I think is a, a really common sentiment that I hear now from patients. And so over time, instead of the freshman 15, I gained more like the freshman 50. And by the end of college, I was probably 250 pounds starting medical school. And um, as you may guess, medical school, you know, pursuing your MD is a very difficult, rigorous process and not having my dad, who was my number one supporter, um, you know, just a phone call away, it was really hard for me. So medical school, um, I put on the rest of my excess weight, just mostly because of just like the stress and also like the crazy hours that we have to work in the hospital. We have shifts that are, of course, 18 hours, 24 hours long plus. Um, And so it was difficult. And I turned to foods, not just for comfort, but also convenience. And usually it was very ultra processed carbohydrates and refined sugars. So by the time I graduated medical school, was an MD working in Boston in my residency um, at these Tufts affiliated programs, I was a type two diabetic with a hemoglobin A1C of 8.7. I had obstructive sleep apnea and they were recommending a CPAP machine. I had um, unfortunately high blood pressure, high cholesterol, fatty liver disease, the whole nine. I mean, my joints hurt. I had plantar fasciitis and I wasn't even 30 years old. So this is when I was just 26, 27. Um, And that's when I reached my peak, which is 306 pounds. So that's really my story of the weight gain. I don't know if you have like questions or anything, any input on what I've said so far. Well, I mean, I just have two thoughts, I guess. You know, the first one is medical school is hard enough as it is without, you know, major trauma in your personal life. You mentioned the hours and all the shifts you have to do. And, and, you know, you're in this world where you're not concerned with yourself. You're concerned with making everybody else healthy yet. Here you are with all these conditions. What a way to get a residency. I don't mean to make, make light of it, but you're going to go through firsthand all of the things that you're going to be treating your people eventually anyway. It's crazy. It's true. And I think there's not a big focus on mental health of, or, or, or just general wellness of like providers. So like during all of the training that we go to, it's very patient focused, patient centric, and there's not a lot of thought behind like the nutrition, the mental wellness and the over, like the overall healthcare of the actual person providing, um, these medical services. So I definitely pushed my own health aside um, and preferentially was around for patients. And I feel like I took really good care of my patients and got great grades and got great feedback. But my health was definitely just like crumbling the entire time I was in my training. Wow. So I do have the question too, you know, before we get into what actually ended up working for you, were you trying at all to improve your health? Were you trying to clean up your nutrition? Were you following any type of advice at the point? Um, very intermittently, I would try things, but as you know, it takes so much effort and I feel like things like a dietary change, it can't be something that's temporary, like something that you do for a month or two weeks, like a cleanse or some kind of, uh, joining the gym and doing three hour sessions. Like you're not going to lose 120 excess pounds in a three month or six month period. So I just never really like fully committed. Um, one of the things that I tried was weight watchers, which just didn't work for me because I almost like was too smart 
for it. Like I would manipulate the points in such a way that I was still eating things like pizza and uh, sandwiches with Italian bread and just trying to stay under my allotted points because it's a very rudimentary way to look at weight loss to be counting points and calories because it doesn't address like the hormonal aspect of weight gain. <laughs> hate the game. Don't hate the player. <laughs> sounds like you were able to figure out the system and game it in your favor. <laughs> I know, I know. It was crazy though that the uh, the two years or so that I was a physician and doling out help, like advice to patients, was really, really hard. And I've thought about like I could probably write a book just on that, you know, eighteen to twenty four month period of my life, like giving advice as a morbidly obese doctor. It was just like awful and very awkward, and gave me a lot of. Um, I don't know, food for thought. There was a lot of introspection going on because I would get feedback from patients where I'm telling someone who's 250 pounds that they have pre-diabetes and they have to uh, lose weight. And these are the things that I would recommend when at the same time, I'm 300 pounds with full-blown type two diabetes. And like my health is worse than theirs. And they're like, look who's talking. I can't, that part right there, I cannot even imagine. I'm sure you are absolutely right. You could probably write a book about it. That must've been awful. Yeah. And I think it's a problem that a lot of doctors and nurses have nationwide. If you just like look at the health of our doctors and nurses, I think like the mental health has suffered a lot, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic, but also just in general, our healthcare providers don't really take care of themselves very well, unfortunately. And a lot of my patients, and I, I practice full-time obesity medicine now, and a lot of my patients are healthcare workers. I have eye doctors and dentists and nurses from the hospital, nurse practitioners, tons of healthcare providers because they just have never prioritized themselves until now. But you know that I'm lucky that they chose me for their doctor. Yeah. Wow. And now we're relying on them so heavily during the pandemic to solve all of our problems for us. It's just absolutely crazy. I, I, my heart truly goes out to people on the front lines during this whole time. And obviously, again, not enough, not a lot of time to like really take care of themselves or, you know, learn the truth for themselves of even what to do to begin with. Um, right. so yeah, so hard. So, okay, let's pick back up on your story. So it, it seems like that's about where you kind of hit the peak of your weight. Is that correct? Yeah. So probably around 26, 27, uh, this was 2016. Um, unfortunately my, my sister was diagnosed with a rare, a, aggressive form of ovarian cancer. It was a, it was called a germ cell tumor and it was found extra gonadally, which means it like, wasn't actually found in her uterus. It was kind of just like a sack of cells found in her pelvic area. And, uh, you know, doctors took a sample, they took surrounding lymph nodes and, unfortunately, like slowly but surely, this picture started to form that was very parallel to what we dealt with um, with my father in his 40s, where she was going for stem cell transplants, chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, multiple surgeries to try to like chase this cancer that was so far gone. And it was kind of through, you know, no fault of her own going through this. She was in her early 30s, she passed away at 32, but she was dealing with this from like 30, 31, 32. She had two little children at home, my niece and nephew, who were just, um, you know, one and five at the time when she um, inevitably passed, they were six and two. Oh. And she was just trying to survive. Like that was her main goal. Like I will do whatever it takes to get through this for my kids. So that was her thought process was like, I'll do anything like stem cell transplants, uh, you know, immunotherapy, whatever kinds of crazy things Dana Farber can come up with. I'm down because I need to 
be on this earth for my kids. And that whole journey that she went on and that fight that she had was during my residency at Tufts. And I would, you know, go work full days in clinic or in the emergency room and then go to see her at the hospital at Brigham and Women's at night um, because she would, you know, going through the stem cell transplant, you actually have to remain hospitalized through all that. And so she would have the treatment during the day and I would just sit with her all night long and we would just, you know, talk about things while her children were at home um, with her husband. So it was horrible. It's the worst thing that anyone in my family has ever gone through far worse than our father passing away, even just because her kids are so small. And so that diagnosis, um, her diagnosis and her whole fight through this really motivated me to choose differently with my own health, because I, at the end of the day, felt that you know, this diagnosis of my own of diabetes and obstructive sleep apnea and fatty liver and high cholesterol and high blood pressure was a choice. Like she didn't choose to get this rare aggressive form of ovarian cancer, but I was choosing to eat bread and pasta and potatoes and chips and cookies and cereal every single day. And that choice that I was making was harming my health and was actually causing all of this metabolic dysfunction and all of these diagnoses. They were, they, they really, um, seemed to me to be a choice, whereas what she was going through was not. So um, August 1st of 2016, I woke up and I just chose differently. I was like, I'm done with this. I am absolutely not going to put this, you know, these toxic chemicals in my body anymore. I started a low carb diet right off the bat. I started eating super clean. At that point I was counting carbs, but it wasn't like a, a huge focus of mine. It was really all about switching from chips and cookies and crackers and cereal and pasta and bread and potatoes to clean foods like fruits and vegetables and nuts and berries and meats and things like that. So I made that transition without, you know, specifically thinking I'm going to start eating low carb. I just thought I'm just going to eat clean, get rid of all the ultra processed foods, get rid of all the sugars. And with that decision, the weight started to come off very quickly. So over an 18 month period, I lost uh, 125 pounds and that was starting in August of 2016. And, um, during all of that, you know, probably when I was around 230 pounds and, and my weight was plateauing, my sister passed away. That was, um, June of 2017. She did actually get to see, um, you know, me become healthier, um, cause I knew I wanted to be around for her kids in the event of her passing. And she also got to see her husband, my brother-in-law, Jacob become a lot healthier as well, because he had a starting weight of 300 pounds and also dropped 120 pounds. So we both kind of partnered and became healthier for her and for her legacy and her children. Wow. I'll pause because I feel like I've been talking a lot. No, that's great. That's why we have you on the show. It's it's really interesting that you started a low carbohydrate diet without even really, you know, having much exposure to a low carbohydrate diet. Was it just recognizing that you it was it was clearly obvious that the foods you were eating were not great for you and just eliminating them and replacing them with whole food options would would kind of give you those results? You had that basic understanding, correct? Exactly. So I didn't really know, well, this was 2016. So there wasn't this like huge keto low carb community like there is now. And so I hadn't really done a lot of research, but I clearly saw that with diets like Weight Watchers, calorie counting, portion control, this kind of like rudimentary approach of just like lowering the amount of bread, the amount of cereal, the amount of potatoes or cookies or crackers was never going to work. And I had to like get rid of the most toxic foods from my life completely. And so I just purged my entire apartment of 
all of the processed crap and all of the sugars. I started drinking coffee black. I started um, logging all of my food intake. I used my fitness pal at the time and I was like tracking my weight and just eating clean like that. It was usually around 50, 60 grams of total carbohydrates per day. So it was like a naturally low carb approach that was kind of similar to paleo or whole 30. And I was dropping five to 10 pounds per month at that point. I mean, if you look at my journey as a whole, like if you look at it as an 18 month process, and you do it by week, it was an average of two pounds, one to two pounds per week over 18 months. But of course, the weight kind of melted away when I first started just because I was like cleaning my my life and my diet from all of these bad foods that I'd become so dependent on over the years. Yeah, I see that all the time where somebody can start that weight loss. And it's really astounding how quickly people can melt away, especially initially. What were some of the challenges that you faced early on? I, I mean, you, you really dove into the deep end as far as this goes. It must have been challenging. How was your body feeling? at that point? I think for like, you know, a three to seven day period, a lot of people and myself included experience sugar withdrawals and, um, kind of just like these carb cravings that are just unreal when your body is so used to just living on carb to carb, sugar to sugar, you have these just like peaks and valleys all day long of insulin and ghrelin and leptin and glucose. There's all of these hormones released from the pancreas and the gut that, um, affect that can affect your mood. They can affect your sleep cycle and they certainly affect your ability to stay on a diet. So if you're like just, just for the first time starting like a low carb approach to weight loss, you may have something like real withdrawals from those carbs and sugars. And I definitely experienced some hanger. You know, I was like, hungry and angry because I really wanted to just go buy a box of Lucky Charms and some Oreos and call it a day and just be like done with it. Just like I had a million times in the past. Like I would restrict for a few days and then just like binge on all the bad stuff that I was used to eating. But this time was different because I had such a huge motivating factor that it, that it really kept me on track. And I know not everyone has like a sister dying of cancer. So it's might not be relatable for everybody, but a lot of people have sick family members. Sometimes it's, you know, a first time diagnosis of diabetes and you're, you're fearful of maybe having to like be on insulin for the rest of your life. There's some kind of motivating factor that usually people can kind of cling to during a period like this. And I think if you don't have that, then it makes it really hard to make any sustainable change. Yeah. One of my favorite sayings, when pain increases, hearing improves. It, it, it sucks to change sometimes. It sucks to do things differently. We don't like to change. And so the pain has to increase to a point that we're willing to go through that change to experience, you know, what it's like on the other side. It, it's so, it, it's funny though, because like in the moment when you want the Oreos, it's hard to think past those three to seven days that are going to feel crappy. I think anybody would answer like, yeah, I, I'll do three to seven days of hell if I can get to, you know, the rest of my life being healthy and happy and enjoying my grandkids. But, but when you're in the middle of it, it sure doesn't, doesn't feel like it's ever going to end. Yep. Yeah. Wow. So take us back to when you were plateauing and how you were able to get past that. Yeah. So for, for a couple of months during the middle of, uh, you know, this whole weight loss process, I plateaued and that was really right around my sister's passing. It was just, I, I entered into this like survival mode mentality where it was like, I'm just going to eat food for sustenance so that I can live to the next day. And my brother-in-law, myself, my mom, we were sleeping on the floor of her hospice room for like her final three weeks on wow. this earth. And it was just awful. Like it's, it's the worst three weeks of my life. Just like what watching and waiting, knowing going to happen 
to your sister and best friend. So I, it was awful. And I plateaued understandably for a couple of months after that. And then, um, I tried to think about like what my sister would want, right? Like she told me a lot of things on her deathbed. She told me a lot of things she wanted, including exactly what kind of dog to get and how to, how to handle her kids as they got older and, and things that she just like requested of me. And she did want me to like keep going down this track and down this path of weight loss. So I, you know, listened to my big sister and I got back on track um, by reading my favorite book by Dr. Jason Fung, The Obesity Code. And in it, he of course discusses very famously intermittent fasting and you know how it works, why it works, the basics. That book is, uh, you know, that book and The Diabetes Code um, are two of his most famous books and I share them with patients all the time now. Um, after reading it, I began intermittent fasting. Most of the time my eating window was six hours or eight hours in any given day. And I would fast for about 16 to 18 hours every night until the next day, usually around lunchtime. And so once I implemented that, I also at the same time got a little more exact about my carb counts. And so I decided to do somewhere between 20 and 30 net carbs per day or 40 to 50 total carbs per day. And that bracket has been something that really I've kept to um, for years now. So this is about five years ago that I decided to start implementing intermittent fasting and be uh, more specific about the carb count. And that intermittent fasting schedule plus low carb has been my long-term um, eating plan ever since. And so I did end up losing, you know, the rest of my, most of my excess weight and went from 230 to around 180 something. And my maintenance mode has looked pretty much exactly like my weight loss mode, except now sometimes I exercise. People find it very surprising when I say this, but I actually didn't really go to the gym or have any kind of exercise regimen during that entire 18 month process where I dropped 125 pounds. It wasn't until I got to my goal that I began implementing, um, cardio and weightlifting. Wow. That's amazing. More people need to understand that statement that it wasn't necessarily exercise or calorie burning that got you the result that you needed. Uh, Jason Fung is absolutely total game changer in my personal life as well. So I had been working on a metabolic cart for about a decade when I came across his work and a metabolic cart will basically measure somebody's metabolism and we'll see the baseline number of calories that they burn at a rested state. And we would be in the habit of telling people like, look, you need to eat at least this many calories and more if you want to maintain your metabolism really high. If you do a diet, what's going to happen is you'll lose weight, but your resting metabolism will go down. You'll burn less calories and you'll eventually gain the weight again. So when people started fasting and they were telling me that they were restricting their calories because they were restricting the time of their eating window and, and that in turn was making it so they couldn't eat as many calories yet they would come in and I would hook them up to this metabolic analyzer and they would be burning in some cases like hundreds of calories more than what they should have been, you know, based on what their metabolic rate should have been for their age, height, weight, and gender. And it blew my mind. I could not wrap my mind around why diet dieting was different than fasting. And we've done a few deep dives into this topic, but I don't think we can talk about this enough. Can you maybe explain to the listener the difference between dieting, caloric restriction, and fasting that maybe on the back end causes caloric restriction? 
So a lot of this is speculative and we don't know, you know, 100% exactly what's going on because it's hard to fund studies like this, but it's theorized and it's thought that when you reduce calories, just calories and portion sizes, like they do with a lot of, I mean, so many programs, it's like the default for dietitians and nutritionists to, to just lower calories. Unfortunately, like we've seen in the big loser study, there is a commensurate decrease in the basal metabolic rate. So your metabolism slows to kind of catch up to the lower caloric needs of your body. So, so you eat less food overall, and then your body slows down to catch up to it so that you don't lose weight. And this may be some kind of adaptation when you look at human evolution, like maybe uh, during caveman times, if you just didn't have access to as much food, your body kind of slows down so that you're not rapidly losing muscle mass and fat mass and so that you can survive for long periods. Just like how plain walking is not really that great for weight loss because our ancestors walked very long distances, no problem without losing any fat. Like the body is meant to kind of hold on to that excess fat and hold on to muscle. So when you look at studies on intermittent fasting and low carb, if you're reducing your carbohydrate count, but not necessarily your calorie count, there's not um, this decrease in basal metabolic rate and there's not a muscle loss, but just a fat loss. And the same thing happens with intermittent fasting, which I think is why there's this just like holy grail combination of low carb plus intermittent fasting that so many doctors are now endorsing because when you combine them, you can lose weight, lose fat mass without losing any muscle mass and um, you don't have that decrease in basal metabolic rate because that's what you really want to avoid. Like in these bigger loser studies, you want to avoid your basal metabolic rate going down because obviously that's not going to do anyone any good. And if you ever go back to eating the number of calories that you were eating before, you will balloon back up to where you were and then some, which is very unfortunate. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Those biggest loser studies are so interesting. We will be sure to link to that in the show notes so the listeners can go and check that out. Those are using the same metabolic carts that I used for a better part of my career. One of the things you actually kind of didn't mention in all the benefits of what you can get when you approach dieting and lifestyle this way is a lack of hunger. Can you tell me why you were feeling hangry, you know, before when you had just gotten started, you know, changing your diet, but, but with fasting, you would think you, you would still be very, very hungry, but that kind of ends up going away. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, of course. So um, what's interesting in my own story is that, you know, halfway through the weight loss process, after I dropped 70 something pounds was when I implemented the intermittent fasting. And, you know, after reading some, some of the works by Jason Fung and looking into doing my own research on intermittent fasting, it seemed like just a logical progression from, uh, you know, a carb reduction to intermittent fasting. And it's something that most people, like most of my patients in the obesity medicine clinic realize that they're just naturally less hungry. And most of that has to do with hormones. So, um, you know, I, after losing all of my weight, I went to and became board certified by the American board of obesity medicine. And I switched from primary care to a full-time obesity medicine specialist. And I, and I, you know, my day job is to help people lose weight with a variety of different things like, you know, lifestyle changes and medications, intermittent fasting. And, so something that I just like would love to talk about is this progression of a low carb to intermittent fasting. Like I usually don't start with patients right out the gate. Hi, you know, I'm a, a fasting specialist. Let's start fasting right away. Like it's not really like that. It really is a progression. So my first visit with a patient is 40 minutes long and it's almost exclusively about 
diet. Like I talk about, you know, history of disordered eating and I talk about history of diets that people have tried and lifestyle changes that they may have tried. What you often hear is that people have tried intermittent fasting, like an eight hour eating window, but eating all the same foods. And they're like, oh, I'm just starving all the time. And I'm like, well, that's because you weren't on the right diet paired with the intermittent fasting, right? Like it needs to be low carb first, cleaning up your diet and eating like a whole, you know, a very whole food, um, fat and protein and fiber based approach first. And then the intermittent fasting will come very easily because you won't be nearly as hungry. So I think I mentioned earlier, when you eat lots of carbs and sugar, if you eat the standard American diet of 250, 350 grams of carbohydrates per day, you know, you're having things like granola and oatmeal and cereal or pancakes and waffles for breakfast. You get an insulin spike, you get a glucose spike, you get a ghrelin spike, which is the hunger hormone two hours after eating. You're having sandwiches for lunch. Your snacks are like chips and cookies. Your maybe candy. Your dinner is potatoes and pasta and maybe some more bread. And then you're having like an after dinner snack. All day long, you have these peaks and valleys of insulin, glucose, ghrelin, leptin, all of these hormones that are going wild and they're like haywire. When you check the same hormones in someone who's eating, uh, you know, a moderate amount of healthy fats, higher protein, fiber, those numbers, like the insulin levels, glucose levels, they're all very flat. It's like very muted responses. And that's the kind of response that you want because all of those hormones are implicated in hunger and satiety. And so when your body is no longer running on sugar and carbs for fuel, and it's running more on fats and protein and fiber, and you're giving your body what it really needs to sustain itself, you're not going to be hungry all the time. So a lot of people just start naturally intermittent fasting, which is really great. I mean, to just to just know that you should probably only eat when you're hungry. Um, it's not so much like intuitive eating, right? Because I feel like intuitive eating, uh, I, if you told me to intuitively eat, I would just go to the store and buy Lucky Charms right now or in some Oreos and just like intuitively eat all of it. Um, so it's not so much intuitive eating. It's more just like listening to your body. And when you are genuinely hungry and you're thriving and living on fat and protein and fiber, you will just naturally eat less often. Yeah, totally. I could not agree more. And we have definitely approached that with our clients in the same way. Like I, I do strongly believe that fasting is like the gold standard of what will get amazing results for pretty much anybody I've ever worked with, period. But you have to earn the right to get to that point. And I would submit that most people that come to see us and come to see you have probably never experienced a time when they were truly satiated and really like not thinking about food and, and absolutely like out of the hunger cycle. And you have to get to that place first. And that's the time when I'm kind of doing the same thing you are. Let's add foods, get more eggs, only eat 10 eggs if you can't eat 11. <laughs> you know, in the beginning, like get really satiated and then we can start to work on the fasting because you're right, it will be more um, intuitive without it being intuitive eating because I would do the same thing, intuitively eat an entire pie. <laughs> Uh, exactly. Yeah. If like 50% of every meal that you're used to eating and 50% or more of every snack that you're used to eating is sugar, then you don't even know what it's like to feel satisfied. Cause like within an hour or two of eating, you're like starving all over again. And it's just this vicious cycle and it makes it really hard to diet. Cause if you don't put in 
um, a lot of effort to get like the carb count low. And I don't mean low, like 120, 130, 150 grams a day, but actually low, like 40 or 50 total carbs a day, then I don't think, you know, it's possible to experience that true satiety. I have, you know, a lot of like older recommendations will say 120, 130 grams of carbs is a reduced carb diet, but 120 or 30 grams of carbs a day is, kind of a lot. Like you can have several slices of bread. You can have a bowl of cereal with that. And so you're still going to have fluctuations in your blood sugar and your insulin that are pretty crazy. And it's not really until the lower, I mean, maybe uh, ketogenic levels, but not necessarily um, of carbs that you're going to experience the true satiety. So I, I have trouble with like keto as a word. And it's not because I hate the keto diet or think it's useless. I think it's great. I think it was, you know, created to, uh, as a tactic for children to treat epilepsy. And I kind of love it. I have a lot of patients who are on it, but when, when you hear it, it has like this terribly negative connotation where people have associated it over time with like keto carnivore processed, like I'm going to eat salami, bacon, cheese, and steak only and nothing else. Um, and so it's, and, and, and there's like this huge focus on like getting into ketosis and maintaining yourself in ketosis with my patients. I just make it very simple. Like it's all about getting rid of all the ultra processed foods, getting rid of the refined sugars and minimizing your carbs as low as you can get it. And for some people that's 60 grams a day. For some people that's 40 grams a day. I have patients who want to eat 10 to 20 grams of carbs per day, but at the end of the day, it's a drastic reduction in carb counts. And it's not so much a focus on like specifically getting into a ketogenic state. Yeah, no, I love that just because it's reduced from like a 400, you know, gram standard American diet, <laughs> you know, carbohydrate intake. Like that doesn't mean that it's truly low carb that will like really get somebody a lot of really good results. So I'm really glad you made that point. This might be a good time. You know, we've been talking about sugar. We've been talking about hormones. I got asked this question today. It might be good to explain to the listener. I had my own answer for it for my client, but she said, you know, when I get really stressed, I tend to crave more sugar and I tend to, to eat more sugar in that state. Can you explain why that is? Yeah. So I think that a lot of stress and, you know, night shift work, it all has to do with hormones. Like I was saying with, uh, you know, weight gain and weight loss. So, so weight loss, we try to implement a approach that is like hormonally driven rather than just this rudimentary, like eat less calorie approach. Um, so when it comes to weight gain, and that, you know, that includes just like cravings in general for like, for like sugar and carbohydrates, I think of it, a lot of it is mediated by hormones, in particular, things like cortisol and insulin fluctuations and glucose fluctuations. It's also just like habit. So like if you're so used to eating candy or cookies when you're stressed, it's hard to just break that habit, just like it is extremely difficult for an alcoholic to break, you know, an alcohol addiction or, or a drug addict to break that addiction. We know from, you know, functional MRI studies that the brain lights up very similarly with things like sugar to things like cocaine. So, you know, it's probably dopamine and serotonin and norepinephrine and cortisol. It's, it's like this just menagerie of different hormones that are implicated and nobody knows for sure 100% what is mediating it. So I often will just tell patients like, this is a hormonally driven process. And the longer you are without these foods from a habit standpoint, but also from like, um, you know, like 
kind of like a withdrawal from drugs standpoint. Like the longer you are without them, the better off you're going to be with cravings. But then also on top of that, of course, when it comes to stress, like working on ways to lower your stress and lower your cortisol, whether it's meditation or yoga or exercise or calling a friend. I mean, there's a, there's, you know, a list of things that you can try that are all, um, better options than eating carbs and sugar. One of my favorite books is called 50 ways to, to soothe yourself without food. Um, and it's by, uh, Susan Albers and it's a great book. There's actually a sequel called 50 more ways to soothe yourself without food. And she really, you know, gets into the nitty nitty gritty of like, listen, you got to try one of these other things. That's not Oreos when you get stressed, or like a Milky way, when you get stressed, like there's other things in life uh, to live for. And there's other ways to de-stress that are not just food and that uncoupling, like, you know, like stress from food is really, really hard to do. And that's one of the, you know, that's one of the ways over time that I gained all of my weight was emotional eating and comfort food and this like really inappropriate relationship with food. So it's something that I work on with patients constantly. And a lot of it is about minimizing how often you do it, right? Like I know I have a history of binge eating disorder myself. Like I've had points in my life, particularly when my sister was sick, when my dad was sick, where I binged on foods and it was just a way for me to cope mentally with like depression, anxiety, stress, but it's how often that's happening. Like, is that happening once a week or is it happening once a year? And then it's also your response to what, what do you do after the binge? Are you going to forgive yourself or are you going to cry and keep eating terribly the whole weekend, then the whole week, then the rest of the month? It's always going to be, I'll start Monday. I'll start April 1st. I'll start May. It, it's, it's something that's so easy to put off, but if you just forgive yourself in the moment, like I screwed up, I'm stressed, I'm anxious. I ate bad. It's done. My next meal is going to be high in protein, fat, and fiber. I'm getting back on track. I forgive myself. I love myself. You're much better off. So I work on patients a lot with like, you know, mental health and um, just their response to stress and their response to cheating and binging um, because it's something that we're all going to have to deal with because it's part of the weight loss process. Nobody is perfect. Yeah. I mean, what percentage of your job is being a medical doctor versus the other percent of the job is being a therapist? <laughs> I know, you know, in primary care, it felt like 50% of my visits were about depression and anxiety and chronic stress and all of the things that come with, uh, you know, crazy uh, biopsychosocial factors that people are having to deal with day in and day out. It's just like, it affects your health so profoundly. And sometimes it's someone who's dealt with, you know, a history of sexual assault or something like that. And, and over the course of many years, that has ballooned into lack of self-worth and then eating their feelings, uh, inappropriate relationship with ultra-processed foods and sugar. And all of a sudden, before you know it, it's like morbid obesity, type 2 diabetes, obstructive sleep apnea, fatty liver, and it just snowballs. And, and so getting down um, into the details of what has you know led to this, this state of their mental health and this state of their health overall is really helpful as a doctor. And that was true in primary care and it's truer than ever in weight loss medicine. Yeah. I think that's really overlooked. Um, I think it's something that could be way more talked about. I cannot believe the number of times that we talk about mental health on this show that I thought was going to be about, you know, lifting weights or, you know, eating a certain way. It's, it's so much more about <laughs> dealing with traumas and mental health. And I would have ever assumed all these problems are so, so prevalent. It's, it's, I think it's great that you're addressing that and that you have the history of that to be able to help people. 
Yeah, thanks. It, I, and I think, you know, I don't know if there's a study proving this, but I think when your doctor has gone through uh, a problem that you're dealing with, like if you had a rheumatologist with rheumatoid arthritis or an endocrinologist with type one diabetes, uh, you know, or a weight loss specialist with a history of morbid obesity and has gone through this whole process, I think it really helps. And I know that my story um, can inspire and motivate patients as well as like followers on social media. So, you know, I keep, I keep sharing it and doing what I do. Yeah, it's phenomenal. One of the things that really drew me to you was the way that you can kind of live in all of these different worlds. You're not dogmatic about diet somebody doesn't have to eat a specific way to be able to work with you. And you also use the tools available to you as a doctor, which I don't think is bad. I don't think it's a great thing that that's the one thing that anybody ever does and doesn't address other lifestyle things. But can you talk about how um, obesity medication has changed over the years and what tools you use today for that? Yeah, of course. So part of my um, American Board of Obesity Medicine certification Part of the process is, of course, like learning about lifestyle changes, like we're going to learn about fasting, we're going to learn about exercise, we're going to learn about dietary changes, particularly the latest recommendations like the American Diabetes Association endorsing, um, you know, low carb as a viable dietary option for weight loss in pre-diabetics and diabetic patients. So, um of course, a huge part of that is medications. And, and so a lot of my job is de-escalating medications that people already take, like for example, taking them off insulin, because as they're losing weight, their metabolic health is improving and their diabetes is reversing. And so um, I'm actually very grateful for my years that I spent in pri uh, primary care and family medicine, because it taught me so much about all of the vast variety of medications that people take for blood pressure and cholesterol and um, diabetes. And, and I'm constantly having having to come down on those medications and work with patients, primary care doctors to like deescalate. Um, but then there's also this field of um, anti-obesity medications and there's a variety of different medications there. And so I'm definitely, you know, the, the vast majority of my patients, I do focus on lifestyle change. And most of my first 40 minutes with a patient are all about lifestyle. And so sometimes people come to an obesity doctor and they, and they literally like the first thing out of their mouth is I'm here for the medication. And it's like, we really need to talk about this because if there was a pill that just like magically made you skinny, I would take it and the whole country would be on it right now. <laughs> so I wish it was that simple, right? It's like not that simple at all. So I make sure people understand like, this is going to be a huge lifestyle change for you. The priority is going to be your diet. We're going to talk about other tools like intermittent fasting and exercise and all these other things. And then I do run through like common anti-obesity medications with people. I use them like on a very, you know, personalized approach and probably somewhere between 30 or 40% of my patients take some kind of medication to help enhance things. So for example, I will use, um, Wellbutrin, which is half of the drug Contrae. Wellbutrin is an antidepressant that affects the dopamine and serotonin receptors in your brain. A lot of my patients deal with, um, you know, depression and of course, emotional eating issues. Wellbutrin at a low dose once a day can be really helpful for like decreasing cravings for carbs and sugar and can be really helpful in uncoupling that like stress, depression, um, response to food and that emotional eating issue, as well as sometimes binge eating. So I'll use that specifically for that type of patient. Um, but of course, like every medication comes with risk. So if someone has a history of seizures or suicidality, I'm never going to use Wellbutrin. It's like a very careful consideration whenever I reach for an anti-obesity medicine. 
Another common one is actually Topamax, which is half of the drug Qsimia. Um, Qsimia is marketed as Phentermine plus Topamax, but I will just often use Topamax um, by itself, which is a migraine medication um, to treat uh, cravings. It's great for cravings. Sometimes at a low dose, like 25 milligrams once a day or twice a day, it can be really helpful. It's not helpful if you keep eating terribly. Like if you're going to keep having lots of ultra processed foods and sugar, it will never magically make you not want any of it. Because at the end of the day, the cravings in your brain and in your body from you know these hormonal responses to those bad foods, they're going to be a lot stronger than any pill I can prescribe. Um, and that's why there's no like magic medication for this. And then I will often um, combine or use um, fentermine by itself in patients, you know, with no cardiac history, no history of coronary artery disease or heart, arrh heart arrhythmias. I'll use something like fentermine to act as a little bit of a boost of metabolism and also to help with overall hunger. Um, there's newer medications like the GLP-1 agonists like Sixenda, Ozempic, Wegovy. They're very expensive. They're often quite difficult to get covered by insurance, but depending on a, a patient's medical background, they may be a perfect um, complement to a low carbohydrate diet. And so I'm definitely not like a one size fits all. Everyone should be on a, a GLP-1 agonist, but I do use them sometimes in patients with a strong family history of diabetes and people with prediabetes or type two diabetes to lower blood sugar, lower insulin levels, decrease hunger and, um, help with weight loss. And some of the studies of, you know, things like Trulicity and Ozempic and Sixenda, they're very promising when it comes to weight loss, regardless of what type of diet people are on. But I found the most success um, for people who are on low carb diets um, in addition to these anti-obesity drugs. Interesting. Can you like very high level explain what the mechanism is, why those drugs work? Are you talking about the- The um, GLP-1? GLP-1 agonist? Yeah. Okay. So examples of these drugs. So they were first marketed specifically for type two diabetes and in type two diabetes, you may have heard of a drug like Trulicity. It's a once weekly, um, GLP one agonist. And what it does is lower blood sugar, lower, um, overall insulin levels and your insulin response to food. And so sometimes they're an injectable that you take once a day, like Sexenda. Sometimes they're an injectable you take once a week, like Trulicity. But at the end of the day, they, they have the same mechanism of action. And so they're glucagon-like peptide 1 agonist, which is GLP-1 agonist. And it, it has to do a lot with like transporters in your gut and in your pancreas. But at the end of the day, the meds like mimic the action of the hormone that's already in your body called glucagon-like peptide one. And basically the drugs um, stimulate the body to secrete more insulin in response. So it's kind of like a med that's not insulin, but stimulates your body's own insulin production. So you become a little bit more sensitive to insulin. And so when you couple it with a low carb diet, which also makes you more sensitive to insulin, it can be extremely effective with weight loss. And I've had patients lose 50, 75, 100, 150 pounds doing low carb plus GLP ones. Wow. Interesting. We have a few clients that are, you know, considering using them or have used them in the past. So I really appreciate that explanation and knowing that a low carbohydrate diet is just such a great adjunct to that. And it's, 
it's really amazing. Low carbohydrate diets are great for weight loss, but they're great for so many other things that the, the other side benefits that people get just seem to be absolutely endless. And so there's lots of great reasons I think for most people to reduce their carbohydrates from where they are, unless they're already practicing a low carbohydrate diet. Um, I do want to talk about your book, fasting while furious. Can you tell us why you decided to write a book and what message you wanted people to take away from that? It's kind of funny. The, uh, the book, I feel like for the past, you know, hour or however long we've been talking, <laughs> I've like summarized my story and it was exactly what I was hoping to bring to readers in my book. I, I wanted people to see, you know, what the day-to-day looked like in the whole process of me gaining all my excess weight and then deciding to lose all this excess weight. And so I talk about kind of my my thoughts and feelings and my sadness and anger and fury during the whole process of like putting the weight on over years and then dropping the weight over years. And so it is quite autobiographical. It's really like um, kind of a peek behind the curtain of my weight loss journey. And, and in the process, I share so many um, dietary changes, you know, lifestyle changes that I made. And you know, it's pretty easy to like glean exactly how I lost all of the weight and then how I teach my own patients to lose weight nowadays, because I use my own experiences in addition to that certification in obesity medicine to really tailor like these personalized approaches to weight loss with patients. But, um, without it getting too personalized for readers, it, it, there are common themes like lowering your ob- overall carb count and um, lowering or minimizing, eliminating ultra-processed carbohydrates and, and refined sugars and trying things like intermittent fasting if appropriate. So I, I kind of, in telling my story, I hope to you know motivate and inspire people to really do some self-reflection and consider um, a low-carb approach to weight loss as well as perhaps intermittent fasting. And so there's kind of like a getting started guide in there. And there's a, a 21 meal sample meal plan with recipes at the end. And there's also a little chapter with my opinions on um, a variety of different low carb or ketogenic um, supplements that are on the market. Because at the end of the day, I think there's a lot of products out there and people get um, confused and commonly get scammed out of their money and buying these products. And so I kind of just give like the lowdown on what I think about certain, you know, low carb supplements. And I think people appreciate that chapter. It's so funny. I was in the grocery store yesterday and there's so many magazines and so many products that are labeled keto that are, it, it's, it's almost, it, it's kind of weird. Like when I first started getting into low carbohydrate diets, um, it was kind of about the time that you did 2016, 2017, there was nothing that you could buy that had the word keto on it. Nobody know, knew what it was, or like you said, nobody was talking about it, but it, it, it does get a little tricky. It's a, it's kind of a catch 22. Like it's amazing that there, there are products out there to support people who want to do a low carbohydrate diet. But if you're doing this, the weight watchers or slim fast, whatever the hell it is, you know, 0.2 ounce, whatever, anything could be 0.2 ounce and could be considered keto because there's nothing in it. Like, and, and charging so much for it, there is a lot of scamming out there that I've noticed for sure. I know. And I talk to patients about this all the time because I'll have someone, I kid you not, they will come to see me for the first time. They've been, they, they tell me they've been on the keto diet for two months and they've lost zero pounds. And my antennas go up right away. Cause I'm like, 
the keto diet <laughs> for two months and lost zero pounds. Like I've never heard of that. Like there's no way unless you're eating keto bread, keto bars, keto chocolate milkshakes, right? Like that's the only way. And it's always true. Like they've gotten so tricked by these like breads and cereals and products where if you look at the total carb count, it's like, 30 or 40 or 80. Like there's keto quote unquote pizzas out there that are like 40 or 80 carbs total. But then the net carbs, because they just pour a bunch of fiber powder in it, the net carbs are like a fraction of the total carbs. And so people think like, oh, I'm going to do 40 or 50 net carbs a day. And all the 40 or 50 net carbs are coming from ultra processed keto crap. And so unfortunately they aren't losing any weight because they're really not eating that much differently. They're still eating a ton of processed foods, but they're being tricked by these companies that put tons of fiber powder in them. So there's a lot of breads on the market. I find that like say keto on the front that are not. Yeah, totally. I see that all the time too. You feel bad. You really do feel bad for people because they are doing everything they can. They're trying something that's completely unorthodox. All they know is that the standard advice has not worked for them and they think they're broken and something's wrong with them. So they're putting in an effort to try this new kind of keto diet and they have no idea how to actually pull it off when it's it's so simple, you know, to go low carb and to try to eventually get into fasting, but but that's, you know, that doesn't make a lot of money. It's like you said, who's going to make a study on fasting? Who's going to, who's going to pay for a study where you're not eating anything? That's never going to happen. It's hard to find studies that are, you know, like that anyone wants to fund that don't involve medications. Because if it's like a simple intervention, no one like, like diet, I mean, it's simple. It's not easy to go on a low carb diet, but it's simple. It's straightforward. No pharmaceutical company is ever going to fund that. No, absolutely not. And such a good point. I do want to talk about your vulnerability in the book. I love the style and I love that, like you said, you kind of ride the line between your own story and the science behind everything. And it's really easy to understand. Was it difficult for you to be so open and honest about your experience in the book? It, it really was because, you know, I do share, I feel like, you know, our social media, right? Like I'm quite active on Instagram and TikTok and Facebook and, and I share a lot, you know, I share before and after photos, pictures of my niece and nephew. I share, uh, pictures of my dog, but what I don't share a lot of the times is like all of the years that I spent struggling with my weight or like all of the times during, um, you know, my sister's treatment and her passing and her days in hospice that were so difficult for me mentally. Like I don't really, um, pull back the curtain and tell patients or followers about my mental health. And so like that part of the book is definitely, it was the hardest for me to write, the hardest for me to go through and edit and proofread. Um, and still now when I want to like, you know, pick it up and like read a passage or check on something, I, I have a hard time even just reading what I wrote. I mean, it was very therapeutic to write it. Um, it's kind of like how people will tell you that journaling is, is a very therapeutic process to decrease stress and cortisol and can be really helpful at like reflective writing, but it was extremely hard. I think overall it was kind of, um, part of my process of grieving with my sister was writing that book. And it took me a long, it's not a very long book, but it took me a long time to write because of all the emotions of, uh, involved. Mm. Well, I really appreciate that you had the courage to do that. I do journal and see the benefit there, but I'll tell you right now, nobody's reading my journal where everybody else gets to read your experience, but that's really empowering. And they get to take that with them. You mentioned seeing patients and I would love for you to contrast something you mentioned before with the typical experience of going to see your 
your doctor, you mentioned that you spend 40 minutes with the patient on their first visit. That's an incredible amount of time. And based on the doctors that we talk to, not a lot of them have that much time to spend with their patients. So I, w- I w- would ask why you decided to spend more time with your patients. And then I would ask how you were able to implement that. Yeah. So that's a very, um, you know, conscious decision that I made to do 40 minute new patient visits and 20 minute follow-ups. And it does reflect in a lower pay. Like I am making less money because I'm not as productive as other doctors. Um, Doctors by a lot of these large corporations are being pushed to see 25, 30, 35 patients a day. And so their pay often reflects that. Like their salary often reflects that productivity, which is crazy high productivity levels, especially if they're able to provide high quality care to 30 or 35 patients a day. But for me, it's really about addressing everything I possibly can during that visit. And so I try my best to review, um, you know, past medical history, past surgical history. I like to get into like sleep habits, sleep schedule, every kind of diet that someone may have tried. Um, people's overall motivation level is also something that I love to like really get into during the first visit, because I have to know how much effort is going to be put into this because it takes a lot. And if someone comes to me with like a very lackadaisical attitude, I know that it's not going to go very well or that I'm going to have to inspire some confidence or motivation in this patient. So I really do take my time. And particularly when it comes to like anti-obesity medications and all of the um, potential side effects and black, uh, you know, black label kind of warnings on these medications, I have to get a really good sense of medical history if I'm going to be using any of them in the future. And so I do take my time with patients and I think I'm, um, like rewarded for that. You know, I get like a lot of good, positive, kind feedback from patients saying that like they love that they get 15 or 20 minutes with me in follow-up visits and that they love that they have that whole like 40 minute session to start because they get all of their questions answered. And I do very much care about my own personal, um, quality of life and my own like mental state and my own mental health. And to me, like I get paid enough that I'm okay and I can make it even though I have a lot, you know a lot of student loans I'd rather make less money and be less productive and have like much higher quality patient interaction so typically it's somewhere around um, 18 to 22 patients per day that I see because it is mostly follow-ups and just some new patients. So, um, you know, it'll be like an eight to five day where I'm seeing 18 to 22 visits. It's just still a lot. It's still quite productive, but it's not, you know, that 30 to 35 plus patient load where, where doctors are spending five minutes per patient and trying to address, um, lots of things that just like can't be addressed in that time frame. Wow. It is such a shame that you have to take a pay cut to be able to do that. But I'm, I'm so glad you went there with this. I'm willing to bet that your quality of life, knowing that you're providing high quality care with and spending more time with people, I'll bet that pays you back tenfold, whatever money could buy. It does. And sometimes I think about this and I'm like, what would my pay be like if I just spent an hour with every patient? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think I have almost uh, $500,000 in student loan debt. So I don't think I can see one patient per hour, but like truly that's what I wish that I could do. Like that's how much time I actually need is like 60 minutes for every new patient, 30 minutes for every follow-up. But this is like a compromise where I'm doing 40 for new patients and 20 for follow-ups and seeing 20 patients a day. But like, really, I mean, if we really want to like address 
address every part of a patient's health, like that's how much time you need it, especially in like primary care. When people are coming in for you to manage their, like everything from their back pain to their depression, to their uh, type two diabetes, that's not well controlled and their blood pressure skyrocketing. Like, how can you do that in 10 minutes? It's just like impossible. Wow. Well, that is amazing that you are approaching it that way. Such an inspiration. This has been an amazing and wide-reaching conversation. If you had one simple tip that you would like to leave with a listener from this tip that could be actionable in their lives, what would that one thing be? I think learning how to love yourself and forgive yourself was the most important part of my journey. And so um, embracing that whole mental health aspect to weight loss has to be my most important tip for listeners and and followers of this podcast. That's incredible. Dr. Jendro, where can people find you and connect with you in your work? Uh, Probably the best place to find me and where I'm most active and have the most links is on my Instagram. It's at Kevin Jendro, K-E-V-I-N-G-E-N-D-R-E-A-U. It's the same handle on Twitter and it's the same handle on TikTok. And I try to make some, uh, you know, fun weight loss videos for people over there. There's also links to my website, which is just kevingendro.com. Excellent. We will link to all of that in the show notes. Dr. Kevin Gendro, I knew I knew I would mispronounce your name at least once during uh, this conversation. Fortunately, it was at the very, very end. That's hard to say, Gendro. <laughs> it's hard for my mouth to move that way. <laughs> Uh, that's okay. It's perfect. You're saying it right. <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, Dr. Kevin Jindro, uh, author of Fasting While Furious, How We Turn Anger and Sadness into Motivation for Weight Loss. What an amazing conversation this was and so grateful for you and your work. I, I'm really grateful that you were able and willing to go through the process of really loving yourself and turning your life around and losing all that weight and then to turn around and share that message in a way that's really open and vulnerable, I think is very inspiring. So thank you so very much for all of your work and thank you for taking your valuable time to be on our show today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's an honor. It's an absolute honor for us. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio. It's really inspiring and amazing to see some of the reviews that we have been getting and also to receive so many messages and emails about how these episodes have improved our listeners' lives. And so thank you so very much. We are so happy to bring these episodes to you and provide them for free. And we really hope that they help you in your life. Uh, We have just passed two major milestones, which is absolutely mind-blowing to me. And basically, we did both of these in pretty much the exact same day. We have just passed 100,000 downloads worldwide of Boundless Body Radio, and we have just launched our 250th episode, which is absolutely amazing. Like I said, I never imagined we could reach that many people. We always want to keep you updated on things that we're doing on our website. So if you go to myboundlessbody.com, you can always see what we're up to. This month, we have a link that you can go and schedule a functional movement screen, which we do virtually over Zoom. A functional movement screen is a series of seven different movements and three different clearing tests, which is designed to find weak links 
defects in the body, such as muscle imbalances and joint stability issues. It's a really great tool for discovering inefficient movement, and even if you're not experiencing pain in certain areas of your body, it's something that can prevent injury later on. Some muscles need to be stretched, some need to be strengthened, and we can help you create a plan around that so that you can stay healthy and continue to move well for the rest of your life. So again, you can go and schedule that at myboundlessbody.com. You will also see the other services that we offer. You can always schedule a complimentary 30-minute consultation with us to really chat about anything that you like. And remember, if you are enjoying Boundless Body Radio, please take a minute, give us a rating or review on Apple. It really helps get this passion project out to other people. And thank you again for tuning into Boundless Body Radio.